the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We're going to talk about a topic that we're all intimately familiar with and probably all at one level or another, certainly at one time or another in our lives, equally chagrined by and embarrassed by. Remember that passage? It's early on in Genesis. I'm going to do this from memory, I think around Genesis 310 or somewhere in that neighborhood um, where Adam and Eve have now partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have discovered their nakedness and in a response to their shame, they have hid themselves from God. Shame in some ways can be a healthy mechanism. Unfortunately, shame in other ways can move us away from others that can help us and encourage us. And as we see in the case of this passage in uh, Genesis 3, 10 and following, that, that shame can move us away from God. That certainly was the case of the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. A lot of believers today are crippled by shame. They are paralyzed by shame. They have a damaged view of themselves and as a result um, have to deal with that damaged view as at least even impacting how they see or understand how God sees them. Literally standing as a barrier between themselves and a healthy relationship with God. Let's talk about this matter of shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson joins us new book out by InterVarsity Press called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves. As I say, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And Dr. Thompson, great to have you on the program with us tonight. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you. Let's talk about shame for a moment. We, we naturally think, even as we read that passage in Genesis, that shame is a bad, awful, terrible thing that has terrible consequences. But isn't there a degree, a certain fashion in which shame can be helpful? If, for example, if I... If I were to back into a lit stove, without the benefit of pain to tell me I'm burning, there would be nothing to communicate to myself to step away from the stove so that I don't do further damage to my body. Is there a manner in which shame to a degree could function like that, could be helpful to us if, if, if it's responded to in a healthy fashion, both emotionally and theologically? I think you're right. I think that uh, not only from a, from a biblical perspective, but from what we know from uh, just living in families, and let alone what we know from a neurobiological perspective, that the experience of shame is common, it's normal, 
Uh, we experience it early and often as human beings, actually far earlier in our lives than most of us would even imagine that we encounter it, given how it functions in our brain. Uh, but it's also true that uh, the, the real problem that we encounter with this phenomenon has a lot more to do with what we uh, then do in our response to it. It's not even so much that shame in and of itself and our experience of it is the problem as much as what we then do very quickly in response to it. And we see from the biblical narrative that the response of the people who first felt that uh, was not to turn to the other, was not to seek help, not to seek connection from God or from each other, but was, as you've already mentioned, what the, the response was to hide, the response was to turn away. And unfortunately, uh, this then becomes a fairly common practice that we not only experience, but in our response to shame that is so unhelpful, we then also tend to propagate this. We reinforce it in our own lives. And then we tend to spread that, because when we carry shame around with us, uh, it becomes um, like this undercurrent of emotional tenor and tone that is constantly coloring a lot of our interactions. And so we don't just, as we most commonly do, shame ourselves, even quietly, uh, but we also then end up reacting and doing that very thing to other people, uh, oftentimes without our even being consciously aware that we're doing it. And the irony about this is that there is that sense when when we um, are aware of our own shame, um, we feel vulnerable. I mean, I, I, that's certainly the way I would interpret Adam and Eve's reaction by covering themselves up. They felt vulnerable. Maybe that's a stretch, so you, you can correct me on that. But, but there's interesting something there because that vulnerability, if it reveals a defect in ourselves, such as in the case of Adam and Eve, where they essentially broke God's single law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did so. They suddenly realized their shame. They were feeling vulnerable. But instead of losing that, using that vulnerability to, to open themselves up before God— and be able to find forgiveness, they, they suddenly had the reaction to hide themselves. Do we do the same? Well, we certainly do the same, and I think that your uh, use of the word vulnerability is really helpful. Uh, we talk about this a fair bit in the book, um, and I think that, you know, one thing that we point to is, is this notion that the, uh, we, we often will talk about feeling vulnerable, uh, and the connotation is that it's a bad thing, like we don't like to feel vulnerable. Um, what's striking about the biblical text, though, is that it's made very plain in the second chapter of Genesis, preceding that little nasty interaction that the woman and the snake and the man have, that when the man and the woman were created, at the very end of chapter 2, the woman and the man, the man and the woman were naked and they were unashamed. And that notion of being naked is not just a description. In the Hebrew, it's not just a description of their physicality. It is also a way of stating the fact that they were then vulnerable. And the reality is that, you know, most of us go through life working really hard to not be vulnerable, working really hard not to allow ourselves to feel like we find ourselves in those places, when the reality is that we are vulnerable creatures. Uh, it doesn't take much to get us sick. It doesn't take much to run us over and break our ankle. There's a lot about who we naturally are that make us vulnerable. Now, what's striking about the second chapter of Genesis and that comment is that in our vulnerability, in the first couple's vulnerability, they were also unashamed. And one of the things that we see in terms of the trajectory and intention of the creation narrative is this notion uh, 
And the irony now, as we see, that we do our most powerful creative work as human beings when we are quite literally naked and unashamed. We would say, it's, I mean, I don't know many things that are more creative than the act of sexual encounter that then leads to the birth of a baby. Both of those things, between a man and a woman, and then the woman delivering a baby, both those things require nakedness and are really quite messy. Require nakedness, that vulnerability, but are also very, very powerfully creative. When we are able to acknowledge that we are vulnerable, and now what we would say is that vulnerability means that in order for me to flourish as an individual, I actually need, because my vulnerability, I need the other person in my life to be helpful for me. I need your assistance. In fact, we would say from a neuroscience standpoint, we flourish in accordance with the creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when the text tells us that God says, let us make mankind in our image, that we are made as plural beings. We are made as people who were intended for each other. And therefore, in Genesis 2, 18, when he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. In fact, because we are so vulnerable. It is in our places of vulnerability that we actually then find ways to be most powerfully creative when we are unashamed. I suggest in the book that evil is not using shame then and or now. Evil is not using shame simply as a way to make us feel bad about ourselves, but it is using shame to dismantle, to deconstruct, to destroy the entire creation, not just how we feel about ourselves, but how we behave in relationships, and then what we do to each other and to the rest of the created universe. If you just joined our conversation today, a visit with Dr. Kurt Thompson, a look at the soul of shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Now, when we come back after a brief timeout, we're going we're gonna to turn an interesting corner in this dialogue because it, it's ironic that, as Dr. Thompson is pointing out, it is when there is that sense of openness and vulnerability uh, that God can use uh, that circumstance to bring about creation, to bring about certainly healing and restoration. But isn't it interesting how typically our response is that when when we come aware of our shame, it typically uh, drives us away from others. There is that sense that when it arises, um, we, we recognize that we're, we're a fearful of being exposed to others. But as Dr. Thompson points, points out, it's just that very exposure to God himself that can bring about healing. How do we get over that hump? We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Kurt Thompson with us. He is the author of a new book called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Now, I'm curious, doctor, just before the break, talking about this issue of our reactions to shame, it's curious that shame arises when one's sense of defects, in particular, are exposed to others. And yet, wouldn't it be curious that God, who already knows everything about us anyway, if we could somehow capture that sense of awareness and then be able to use it instead of being uh, repelled from God to see that that God died for us while we were yet sinners, understands us and who we are in all of our defects, and and rather than than allowing shame to 
to repel us from God to rather propel us to God? How do we make that happen, though? Well, it's a great question, and I think fortunately we have uh, a very helpful model for us when we look in the Gospel of John in the 21st chapter, when we uh, read about the reinstatement of Peter. It's a well-known story that many of your listeners may be familiar with, in which Peter, after the resurrection, and of course after his betrayal of Jesus, swims to the shore, has breakfast, but then publicly Jesus essentially begins to ask him questions about whether or not Peter loves him. And of course this dialogue leads to Peter, and at one point uh, says that, and Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time, do you love me? I think for me this story is instructive because it tells us a couple of things in general. One is that it was very clear that Jesus kind of, uh, one, can ass- one, one can imagine uh, without, of course, having access to all that has been said that's not recorded in the Gospel around this story, one could imagine how easy it would be for Peter to still be wondering whether or not he has a place in this group, wondering not if he has a place, what that place is. And it's also interesting to me that Jesus did not go off at least to have a private conversation with Peter. It would appear that he starts to ask Peter these questions in front of other people. And what's striking also is that Jesus is not going to leave any stone unturned. There's not going to be any shame left in Peter that, that Jesus is going to allow for. And so he actually has a real encounter with Peter, asking him to really explore this issue. Do you really love me? Now, if it's me, there is the part of me that really wants to say, yes, of course I do, while I'm always remembering, well, of course, there is that part of me that apparently doesn't love you, otherwise I wouldn't have betrayed you. What's so striking then, in addition to this, is that Jesus calls Peter to pay attention to what is potentially shaming for him, but then immediately draws Peter's attention to his assignment of feeding his sheep, tending his lambs, of tending his sheep. And essentially, what's uh, important about this, even from an experiential and a community and neurobiological perspective, is that Peter's healing, Peter's reinstatement, is something that takes place in a real embodied experience. He didn't just get some message from one of the other disciples that came in and said, hey, Peter, I talked to Jesus. He said, hey, that whole incident that happened the night you were, you know, I was crucified, we're cool about that. No, there is a direct encounter with a real person in which Peter really feels the difference, we would imagine, when he hears Jesus commission him, even in the face of knowing what his experience was like. In the same way, we live in a culture that, uh, in which we experience much of our faith knowledge uh, through listening to pastors, through reading scripture, and so forth. But it comes to us, as we like to say, it comes to us through our left brain. It comes to us through knowing things kind of logically and linearly and factually and so forth. That's a very different way of knowing than a real encounter with a real person who says, I know what you've done, and I still really want to hang out with you. Those kinds of encounters actually activate parts of our brain that are very different than the kind of encounter that we understand and that happens to us when we hear from someone the quote-unquote fact, as it were, that we are forgiven. It is in these direct encounters with real people in which our shame really is exposed that our neurobiological underpinnings of that shame can actually be transformed and changed the possibility for creating new neural networks that we, in, in which we experience real release, in which we can remember looking in the face of my friend as I have made confession to him, 
and hearing my friend and remembering my friend say, Kurt, I am with you in this, even in the face of this thing that has happened. That is something that in terms of what I remember and what will actually have powerful impact on my life is going to be far more potent for me than just my hearing the fact that God loves me. And so one of the things that we encourage people to do is to really practice being in small communities of people who are practicing this, uh, this uh, effort of confession and forgiveness on a regular basis in order for us to have real experience that reinforces the very things that we read about in the Scriptures, and so therefore live out the very nature of what St. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, about what it means to live as, as part of the body of Christ. So when we're exhorted in Scripture to confess our sins to one another and so fulfill the law of Christ, that there is that sense of, I think it was just suggesting here, that dynamic that's taking place that, that not only allows us to address the, the theological aspects of guilt and shame, as we've been delineating here, but as well as addressing all of this, the psychological ones and the need for that, 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 um, that horizontal-level connectivity to have that experience, that community, so to speak, in order to experience what it's like to be forgiven. That's exactly right, uh, Craig. I mean, it's, it, I think it's, it's striking that, that Jesus said in the Gospel of John again, and they, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another, that our primary witness to the world about who Jesus is is embodied in the way we love one another, and a primary way in which we demonstrate love for one another is the way that we live with and demonstrate forgiveness for each other's foibles in which we demonstrate and live out what it means to be vulnerable, to be naked, and yet not, shame ha- not let shame have the talking stick in this space. We, in, in the book, we talk about this model of what we read about in the letter to the Hebrews, in which we read, therefore, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. If we're going to watch what Jesus does and do what he did, Jesus was someone who went to the cross. He went looking for shame. He didn't wait for shame to come to find him. He went looking for it in order for him to do the business with shame that needed to be done with it. And so one of the exercises that we give to people is to uh, begin to actually do an inventory of shame. Where are those places in which shame wants to hide out in your life? The more we are actually going to look for it, the less opportunity it has for hijacking our brains, literally, and our relationships, catching us off guard. As we go to look for it and then tell others about this, we find ways to literally create new neural pathways, new neural networks that over time can begin to outpace our shame so that shame does not have the same kind of powerful influence in our lives. So that ultimately then that shame is not something that winds up driving this major wedge between God and ourselves, where we have this sense of diminished value, we convince ourselves God's made a mistake with us, things of this sort, uh, sort of that, uh, that warped view, that warped understanding of our relationship with God, uh, that damage view that uh, so many people often uh, walk in, but rather to understand that that shame can 
um, bring about not just the the awareness that we are exposed, but then to allow that vulnerability to happen so that we can find healing and restoration. Because as I said before, shame, if treated in the proper fashion, if responded to in the proper fashion, like pain, can actually be an important alarm system that tells us there's something wrong that needs some attention in your life. Our conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, the book, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Amongst all of the issues that are troubling Americans today, and it's a laundry list, terrorism, the economy, unemployment, housing, education, you know what I find interesting? That the number one reported concern amongst residents of the state of New Hampshire is substance abuse. Isn't that interesting? Substance abuse, their number one concern. Apparently rampant taking place, uh, particularly amongst kids. And, of course, when we talk about abuse and addictive behavior, uh, it, it comes in a very broad variety of forms. If I talk to you about addiction, I think a lot of our minds immediately have a picture in our mind of either the hobo on the street that has the alcohol addiction problem or maybe the individual that's, that's dealing with drugs and has a drug addiction problem. But growing percentages of Americans, in addition to dealing with sort of the traditional addiction, so to speak, have a variety of other addictions. And it can be as broad as not just illegal drug addiction, but legal or prescription drug addiction. Then you move into other categories. You think about it from a biblical perspective, there are people that are addicted to food, people that can be addicted to spending, gambling, things of that sort. As we talk about the broad level of addiction and addictive behavior in America today, and by the way, 30% of Americans, one out of three of us, struggles with a form of addiction of one sort or another, you would think perhaps the best place for these people to go would be the church, that the church could help them address their addictive behavior. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible talk about all these topics? Well, it certainly does. And yet, sadly, the church seems to be ill-equipped. It, it almost acts as if we're sort of out of sorts on this topic. And so we feel as if, well, if you come to us with an addictive behavior, we immediately need to give you a referral to AA, Narcotics uh, Anonymous, something of that sort. But could we change the face of addiction if we changed our attitudes about what addiction is within the church. To get some insights now, Jonathan Benz joins us. Jonathan is a clinician. He is a certified professional who serves the recovery community. He is the author of a new book called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you for having me, Craig. What about this observation? From your perspective, is that a fairly legitimate claim to say that largely the church seems to be kind of awkward at dealing with this topic? I think your comments are spot on, and that's certainly my experience. Uh, having uh, been blessed enough to, to, be, to have been raised in a home and a congregation that was remarkably recovery-friendly, when I started going out on my own, and doing uh, both clinical work and work in the church, discovering that while for decades uh, churches have allowed AA and NA meetings to take place in basements and fellowship halls, most of those people who go to those meetings uh, would not grace the doors of the church for 
any form of worship or, or participation in Christian community. And I think that's largely due to the shame and the stigma that oftentimes addiction carries in the church world. But that's odd, because as I delineated, you know, when we think of addiction, let's, let's apply the, the more broad definition to it than what seems to be kind of the, the, the narrow traditional approach. Most people, if you say addiction and, and do a word association game, will, you know, say alcohol, drugs, things of that sort. And yet, as we know, both from a scriptural standpoint as well as a clinical standpoint, that there can be all kinds of other dangerous, addictive behaviors. I mean, there, there are uh, ministries now that are dedicated to do nothing but helping people, for example, that struggle with uh, sexual addictions uh, or gambling addiction. So it seemed to me that that, that given the broad nature of this behavior and the fact that <laughs> the Scripture has an awful lot to say about all of them, that if there's any place where we ought to feel welcome, if it were an, an addict ought to feel welcome, it ought to be within, within the Church. Well, and, and one would hope. Uh, it, you know, it's interesting that the American Society of Addiction Medicine defines addiction as a chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and circuitry. And when the medical community defines addiction, drugs, alcohol, gambling, those things are not mentioned. Those are but symptoms of something else that's going on. So we know that there's something that's happening physiologically in the brain of the individual, and I think sometimes that's the part that uh, we in the church community uh, don't get or don't fully understand. Uh, We think that addiction is something that can be prayed away. And while certainly uh, I believe prayer helps in some form of prayer and meditation, we know through science now definitely helps the brain heal, uh, it takes more than just prayer and Bible study for a person to heal and recover. Uh, it takes some form of medical treatment as well. To a certain degree, then, are some of those behaviors, uh, let's take alcohol. And we know certainly there's a physiological aspect to that addictive behavior, drugs too. Uh, but, but to a great degree, is that oftentimes, then, as I think you're suggesting, Jonathan, symptomatic of something deeper going on? Uh, oftentimes, uh, addiction experts will say drugs and alcohol are but a symptom, or uh, sexual compulsivity is a symptom of something deeper going on. Now, we, we do know in the case of alcoholism, science tells us that there's a genetic marker for alcoholism. And, you know, we don't quite know if there's a genetic marker for sex addiction yet. Maybe we'll find at some point that there is. But uh, sometimes it's a chicken or egg uh, discussion, you know, which came first. And I often say it doesn't matter whether uh, something of trauma happened that got the person into addiction or they had a genetic marker that led them into addiction. Uh, we we got to treat it. And uh, we want to treat more than just the symptoms. We want to treat the deeper issues of the psyche or within the Christian context, we would say the soul or the spirit. Now, the church, of course, would typically look at many of these on that laundry list that we mentioned a moment ago and say that, well, the answer, of course, is Christ, and we can help an individual by leading he or she to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and once they start attending church, going to Bible study, things of this sort, that uh, most naturally then, that that life-changing experience, that encounter with Christ, should then address the underlying issues regarding their addiction. And so once they've been able to then, um, through a process of prayer and counseling, things of this sort, overcome that addiction, that they should be done. In other words, there should be no need for ongoing uh, recovery workshops or things of this sort. We oftentimes even hear something, well, people, you know, that once they get through their addictive behavior, then they get addicted to recovery. Is there something wrong with that approach? Well, I I think if we take that approach, then we should do the same uh, with other diseases, with other disease states. 
We certainly would never tell the cancer patient to stop her chemotherapy, or we would never tell uh, the diabetic to, to stop uh, uh, his insulin or watching his sugar levels. Uh, we know that there are certain disease states that are chronic, and apart from some kind of miraculous uh, touch or, or miracle of science, the person will continue to have to treat that for the rest of their life. Uh, so, uh, you know, some people, uh, they struggle and they say, well, it's a sin to be an alcoholic. Well, if that's the case, then perhaps it's a sin to be a diabetic. Uh, you know, we don't stigmatize people who suffer from other disease states that are often characterized by relapse. Um, yet with addiction, we, it is one of the most undertreated uh, issues in our country and one of the most deadly. And I think the beauty of the church, when the church wakes up to the realization that, yes, we hold a lot of answers for spiritual healing, for psychological healing, when we practice that with good medicine, that a person can really uh, increase their chances of finding a life that is happy, joyous, and free, as the big book says. Uh, I think when we, when we really grab hold of that, we can begin to see greater transformation in people's lives in our congregations and also create an atmosphere where it's easier for people to talk about these issues that maybe they would be ashamed to even confess. Well, and maybe then, too, the approach needs to be with the understanding that an individual that is struggling with an addiction, while we kind of traditionally think it as an individual who's weak, who doesn't have the, the kind of um, will or uh, uh, ability with them to, to push themselves back from the table, the drug, the alcohol, whatever, but rather to recognize that in our fallen condition, we are vulnerable to sin. And it is a day-to-day struggle. I mean, if Paul had to struggle daily to die to the flesh, and I I think Paul, both in terms of of his encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and the role that he played in the the early church, uh, probably a little little closer, a little deeper understanding uh, of these principles than just the average Christian out on the street who just casually reads Paul's writings, uh, that if we acknowledge the fact that it's a day-to-day struggle— and that in and of ourselves we are powerless, but through Christ we can overcome this and, and recognize the fact that it's not necessarily just somebody who's got a weak character, but, but rather it's part of the daily struggle to the flesh. Maybe then this sort of stigma that's attached to addictive behavior by the church would be less so, and as a result people would be more willing to find the kind of help they need within both Scripture and the church. I, I would concur, and you know, I would go on to say, uh, I would go on to say what I'm not saying. And what I'm not saying is that there are not uh, what we would call sinful consequences of addiction. So if if the mother, uh, you know, needs uh, a handle of vodka because she's alcoholic, and she drives to the liquor store, and she leaves her child in the hot car in the car seat, uh, and turns the car off uh, to go in to get her alcohol. And, and the child dies, is that a sin? Definitely there are what we would call within the Christian context sinful consequences or definitely harmful behaviors, destructive behavioral patterns. Uh, but, but I think we have to reframe the conversation, as, as you're saying, to say, yes, we know that there are these behaviors, there are, pattern, there are patterns of behaviors, and that really uh, there are principles, spiritual principles in the Scriptures that can help you break free from those destructive behavioral patterns that actually propagate the addictive cycle in your life. 
Jonathan Benz is with us tonight. We're talking about the recovery-minded church, loving and ministering to people with addiction. We'll take a brief time out to come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back with a pretty tight schedule tonight, but we'll see if we can't uh, jump a caller here or two for Jonathan Benz. His new book is called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction, newly released, by the way, by InterVarsity Press. You can get it at bookstores around the Bay Area, of course, through uh, therecoveryplace.com. Jonathan, let's talk some specifics. When we talk about ways in which the church can do a better job, aside from simply saying, let's open up the church basement and allow AA to hold meetings there, what, from your perspective, do you think the body of Christ can be doing that will create the kind of environment that will allow addicts to feel welcome, number one, inside the church? And then what kind of tools do we need to be equipped with in order to really adequately and, and, and appropriately minister to them? Well, I think education is a great place to start. Uh, if, if there are, uh, for example, lay leaders in the congregation who have uh, this kind of passion or who have a particular compassion for people struggling with some kind of addiction, uh, just getting good information uh, and changing the tenor of the conversation within the spiritual community helps. Um, I think being clear that in, in saying and intentional in our message and saying, hey, we want you here. We don't have all the answers. But we're going to help you find the answers that you need, and we're going to journey with you and uh, be on this journey with you to find what you're looking for. And if we can't find it here, we're going to help you find it somewhere. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people are looking for uh, who are struggling with addiction. They don't know where to go. And so there are even practical things that congregations can do. One of the most practical things I say is have a list in your foyer or in your lobby of your church that is a list of uh, community resources not just numbers for the, the AA intergroup, but also uh, therapists that you work with or believe in, or treatment centers or different options so that people can know that they don't have to do this on their own. Uh, and uh, oftentimes the best thing we can do is point them in the right direction if we don't have the answer. And, of course, the irony is, based on just some of the, the broad definitions that you've shared with us tonight, I think uh, many pastors would maybe uh, be surprised to find out that many of these so-called addicts are sitting in the church pews right now. Now, they, this may not be the guy that has, you know, the mainline heroin addiction or is, is, you know, diving into a bottle of vodka every night, perhaps not at the extremes, but there's all kinds of, of signs of addictive behavior uh, that can have negative consequences on your, certainly your spiritual health, your relationships with your spouse, your children, etc. So it would seem to me, when you talk about 30% of Americans that deal with one degree of addiction or another, that a good percentage of them are already in the pews, and this kind of addictive behavior is going on. Unaddressed. Well, you know, what, what about the woman who can't go to sleep at night without uh, her two milligram uh, Xanax, which on the streets is called a Xanny bar? Uh, but if you get it from the uh, pharmacist, it's called a two milligram tablet of Xanax. Or the man who has to take his oxycodone uh, to get to work and has to take it throughout the day because of his car wreck and he can't function without the painkillers. Uh, you know, these are very. Uh, powerful narcotics that our doctors prescribe, and oftentimes we have people sitting in our pews who have become dependent on these uh, medications, these narcotic medications, and can't get off and don't know where to turn. 
Is part of the, the first step here to start destigmatizing a lot of this? Because you say addiction, and that, and that sounds like somebody has just got this, uh, you know, deep, dark, evil, ugly secret. And yet, you know, when we start to look at some of these definitions, we begin to realize that this is more widespread and more common than we realize. Uh, I think one of the places the Church can start is to uh, really have a, an honest discussion about the difference between guilt and shame. And we like to say, you know, guilt, guilt is when I feel bad about what I did, but shame is when I feel bad about who I am. Now, if we believe what St. Paul wrote, as you said, that we are new creations in Christ, we are not bad. We are, we are good people who are struggling sometimes with some bad things. And so separating identity from behavior is very helpful in destigmatizing addiction. So saying to the person, you know, you might even want to say you're a person with addiction. I work with people who they can't handle that label of addict because it's too self-defeating for them. Other people are okay with it. Uh, you know, say, well, you're a person with alcoholism. You're a person whose drinking has taken over. Separating the behavior from actually who the person is uh, is what the church can help with in terms of the spiritual healing process. Sometimes, of course, the big challenge here is just coming to grips with the face of who we really are. You know, there's that mask that I think we not only put on in, in, in front of others, but sometimes even that, that mask is apparent in the mirror, isn't it? We kind of fool ourselves. Well, uh, we, we like denial, and I think it's human nature. Um, I think it's the ego. I think it's the sin nature of the flesh or whatever you want to call it. We like to think that uh, we're, we're doing okay, and sometimes it's hard to take an honest look in the mirror to say, uh, to really give an honest inventory of, of how, I, how I really am doing. Let's slip a caller or two here uh, real quick before the end of our conversation. We're going to jump over to Oakland and say good evening to Eleanor. Eleanor, come on in with your comment or question for Jonathan Benz. Hi, good evening, gentlemen. And first I'd like to say I really am thankful that you're having this conversation. Um, I just have a comment and maybe a little bit of a question. My comment is that several years ago I started a uh, substance abuse recovery ministry in my church. But first, before we actually got the group started, uh, we actually partnered with uh, our local mental health association. And we actually got uh, professionals to come in and give us an overview about um, the pharmacology of addiction as well as the sociology of addiction. Once we got that information, I was able to talk with my pastor, get him on board with it, and actually um, the members of our recovery group came basically right out of our congregation. As we began to do it more and more and months passed by, we were able to even invite some of the family members of people who were uh, in recovery. And we also used Bible, and we also used prayer, and, and um, just a number of different things. So uh, how do you think about uh, churches partnering with other churches and partnering with other um, uh, community uh, mental health associations? Some really good questions, and it sounds like you're doing some really good work there, too. Jonathan, what do you think? Eleanor, I love it. Yes, yes, and yes. That, that was a great approach. Uh, well done in partnering and bringing in good information to the congregation and also working with your pastor. 
You know, oftentimes we don't deal with things in our churches until there's a felt need. So when there's a crisis, we then respond. Uh, and so including the leadership and saying, hey, uh, you know, we're not a, a silo here. We're not a reservoir. We're a river. And uh, we're going to allow the information and the healing to flow. And sometimes we've got to partner with other people to provide optimal healing for our parishioners. And, you know, there's so many organizations out there that you can partner with so that you don't have to sort of do all the heavy lifting and, you know, reinvent the wheels, so to speak. More and more churches, for example, are, are discovering uh, the ministry of Celebrate Recovery. Uh, and that has been exploding, perhaps not as fast as we'd love to see, but that's been exploding across the country. So this idea of whether you're partnering with another congregation or, or taking advantage of some of the resources, as uh, Eleanor just mentioned, that, that already exist to say, hey, what can we do to be more effective in our local ministry? And I love the fact that they recognize, gee, we've got some folks right here in our congregation that are already struggling. Thank you. We appreciate the call tonight, Eleanor. Uh, Jonathan, I know we've just kind of scratched the surface here this evening, but for for others out there that are eavesdropping on the conversation, heard what you've had to share, heard what the caller just had to share, where would you recommend they take some, some important first steps? Well, I, I think we have to ask. Now, I always uh, tell people, be careful who you tell your story to. Not everyone has earned the right to hear your story. So when you go for help, make sure that you're going to someone who you are somewhat confident that they can help point you in the right direction if they don't have the answers themselves. So hopefully your your pastor or an elder in the congregation or a lay leader or a therapist or someone in the community, uh, you know, but first you have to ask. Uh, and that, that's what we all have to do. When we're recognizing that we have a problem, we have to ask for help. If we don't ask for help, we'll never uh, get the help that we need, that we so desperately need. And, of course, in terms of resources, I mentioned Celebrate Recovery, and also a copy of Jonathan's new book might be very helpful to you, too. It's called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction, newly published by InterVarsity. You can get it on uh, the web, of course, the usual suspects, Amazon.com, local uh, bookstores, and RecoveryPlace.com. That's RecoveryPlace.com. And our thanks to Jonathan Benz for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.